This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Thank you for joining me. My name is John Dunn. This episode, we're going to talk about money. In an ordinary time, fundraising is a relevant topic. Everyone can learn some new tricks, but this is not an ordinary time. We have some breaking news on the jobs front right now. We all know this is bad. How bad is yet to be seen? 6.6 million people filed for unemployment over the last week. Three week total now, over 16 million unemployment claims filed. That's why it's more important than ever before to take advantage of every opportunity you can. Our organization is focused primarily around uh, what we're calling Eastside Pet District. So it's a highly impoverished group of municipalities. Gateway Pet Guardians is based in East St. Louis, Illinois, which is just across the river from St. Louis, Missouri. We work really hard keeping pets with their families so that they don't end up in the municipal shelter. Jamie Case is the executive director. Four years ago, our organization was struggling with some a bunch of Parvo puppies. And we were at a point where we needed to get uh, some money quickly. So what One of our employees at the time said that she would stay in the shelter uh, in her favorite dog's kennel until we raised some money and she was adopted. So we took that a step further and we said, what if we put someone in every kennel and had them sleep there? They all raised money and it was just a big party. We are kicking off the 2019 Shelter Slumber Potty at the Gateway Pet Guardian Shelter. The Shelter Slumber Potty, as it's known, that's potty, P-A-W-T-Y, has been wildly successful. The first year, the event banked 30 grand. The next year, another local organization said, hey, we want to be part of it. Together, they raised 50000 Last year, we uh, asked our entire coalition in St. Louis area, and 15 organizations came together and raised almost $300,000 doing a uh, shelter slumber potty. Right now, we have to adapt. So with the right attitude, a little flexibility, creativity, you can not only save your events, but you can make them even better. What if we took this concept of the slumber party and made it a house party? It kind of started just growing like wildfire. Everybody wanted to to be involved. The party will take place, the potty, I'm sorry, will take place on April 18th. On that evening, there's going to be a three-hour Facebook Live telethon. And right now, when we're looking for things to do at home with our families, it's a very smart way to engage an audience. I'm working on a DJ to, to spin live uh, for a little while and take requests. I have David Backus and Alex Petrangelo, who plays for the St. Louis Blues, and they are going to be doing some dad jokes. <laughs> and then just a variety of other things. We'll have some interactive games. Um, we have a soccer player who's going to be doing some tricks for us. Lots of fun things. So people can sit back with their families, watch, and and hopefully raise a lot of money for our organizations that are struggling. This is a peer-to-peer fundraising event. And in these uncertain times, asking for donations may feel uncomfortable. People are hesitant to ask their friends and family for money. But the fact of the matter is there's still people out there with their jobs that are just working from home that are financially secure still. And we still need money. Our job is essential. Lives still need to be saved. So in order for to do that, we need those supporters to reach out to their family and friends and just ask. Your organization can still sign up and take part. We've got information on how to do that on our website 
bestfriends.org podcast. When we all come together, we can do so much more. I'd like to thank Jamie for her time and wish her the best of luck with the House Party event. Next, we turn to two pros, two people who we felt had a lot of good advice to offer, and I think you'll agree that they do. Quick background about who you are, the role you have now. Trish, do you want to go? Sure. So I'm Trish Talbert. I'm uh, the development strategist on Best Friends Animal Society's National Shelter Outreach Team. There are five of us who spend most of our lives on the road. So as you can imagine, that has changed. Going to a lot of our municipal shelter partners, some large and medium-sized 501c3s with government contracts, and helping them implement best practices so that they can do more life-saving So our big challenge right now is figuring out how to do all that and continue the life saving with the challenges that face us. Easy enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Carol, do it together, right, John? Yeah. I no, no, no. You're on your own. I'm just the guy behind the mic. So good luck. Well, I'm turning to Carol Ann. (laughs) All right, Carol Ann. Yeah, that's right, Trish. We will we will do it together. My name is Carol Ann LaJoy, and I have the honor of serving as the director of development for the Richmond SPCA here in Richmond, Virginia. So we are an animal um, rescue and welfare organization. I've been in fund development my entire professional career, which is now over 20 years. My team collectively is in charge of raising around $3 million a year. We have other sources of revenue, but in terms of philanthropic revenue from different sources, um, including event-driven revenue, which we'll talk about how that landscape has changed. But, you know, annual fund events, um, we bring in around $3 million a year. Overall, the budget is around $7.7 million. Trish, organizations absolutely feeling this at every level. And development-wise, donations, they're either already down or certainly will be. We have millions of Americans filing unemployment claims. Are we seeing any trends at this point? Is it just too early? I think everybody is being as proactive as possible. I don't think we really know what will happen other than looking back historically. at When you have a time like this where there's so much uncertainty, you're going to get a fear reaction. So that gift that people were right on the edge of making, I think they will always hold back. They did in the 1990s. They did in 2008. They're waiting to see what is actually going to happen. Now, those that are able to, we have seen, as you've probably seen, some bigger gifts come into community foundations, people that have the assets to do that. We see corporations and foundations stepping up. That's not unusual in a time like this. But as far as all those individual gifts, it's as individual as the person, as the person's economic circumstance. And so the other day I I heard on the Chronicle Philanthropies webinar, a really good way of kind of thinking about this in phases, this, this immediate phase, which I would call the right now, right? The, these, these weeks as people who had events planned, figure out what their alternatives are. As we look at how did we plan to bring in our income, whether it was 3 million, a hundred million, 3,000, 30,000, whatever it was, what was the plan? How is that specifically impacted and where we go from here? And then the other two phases that were discussed by the Chronicle of Philanthropies panelists were recovery and resilience. And I know we're going to get to those topics a little bit later, but I think it will take us just a little bit longer to see how people are going to move across the board once they understand what the real impact is on their individual situation. Yeah. And the same for you, Caroline. Are you able to 
have a kind of understanding at this point? Are you seeing donations down? In Virginia, we're in this mode where it's a little too soon to tell. We have up until this point seen some donations that um, from my deep suspicion, and they've come in in different ways, right? They're coming in online, which are more immediate. And you know that people were making those decisions in the current atmosphere. And we still have a lot of direct mail that comes in and a direct mail appeal that dropped in February. Um, and our suspicion is that some of the response to those may have been coming in uh, before some of the panic had set in. And to Trisha's point, I agree completely. We're going to see this and we're starting to see, but I don't have enough time under my belt to really do a good analysis. It'll be some of what we're going to spend the next few weeks and months doing is to really look and see and, and take a good um thoughtful approach in terms of what is your what does your donor base look like because I think what we'll see is that it's going to hit people in different ways and we're already experiencing that at, when we look at the country and um, who are my donors that are have been immediately furloughed and ha- are animal lovers who are and, and past adopters who were in different types of industry um, we will anticipate and plan on those gifts not coming in right now because they just don't have the ability. Uh, and then spending time and focusing on donors who were probably already giving from a different type of asset pool who maybe haven't felt it in the way that these other folks have and adjust your strategies accordingly. You know, this is in some ways not unlike a natural disaster, at least those of us that live in hurricane zones are feeling that, in that there was a time when we just thought the hurricane would come in, do its worst, and move on. And what we've realized in recent years is that it's often not the hurricane that takes us out. It's what happens afterwards, the continual rain, the weeks of flooding. And I think if you if you take that metaphor out to this, COVID-19 itself is more like the hurricane. It will come through. We haven't, I think, seen the worst of it. But then what will really matter will be those longer term economic impacts. Will, will the front come in and move out or will it actually settle and stay with us for, for months at a time? That's going to have an impact on donations. And I hate to say this, hurricane season is coming up. Yep. You know, the rest of the disasters that we may see don't stop. This is why we plan, right? Which takes me to that, you know, this caution, I think, think of it and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Because we don't know yet, we know there are going to be big impacts, but it's difficult to react. And reacting too quickly might make us make some decisions that we don't want to make. You know, how do we actually create a plan for the next week, the next few weeks? What does that look like? Well, here's one thing we know. And we and we know that human nature has not changed. We know that the need for leadership is as strong as ever and for a particular type of leadership, one that promotes inclusion and adaptation. And we know from historical times before when donations were impacted that those who survive, those who actually in many ways become stronger are those who continue to communicate with their donors. So you may not have a plan in place for how are you going to make up every single gift that won't be given this year that might have been given, but you can certainly have a plan in place for how do you do great stewardship? How do you keep your donors on top of what you're doing? How do you reach out and find out what what happening to them? How are they? Not beginning every conversation with what's going on with your organization, but being prepared to tell them what you are doing. And then when they say, as they often will, so how can I help? 
being prepared with very concrete, specific things. It may be financial, it may be voluntary actions they can take, but really continuing that dialogue. And I think if you look out at the municipal shelter leaders that are doing well, they too, more on the life-saving than the fundraising side, but they're, they're getting that communications plan in place so that we do feel like we're going through this together. We do feel like we're part of a larger community, even if we're more focused on challenge than recovery right at this minute. Let's talk about crisis communications. And in this context, related to this environment where things are moving so quickly, today we may have an event, it's on the calendar, scheduled for mid-June, and you're still trying to make this decision, and then boom, you have to cancel it, stay at home order in place. What's the best way to handle it? Yeah, so we're going to have to do a little bit more of that in terms of canceling events and reaching out to donors and sponsors. I would just remind everyone that we're all in it together. If you are canceling an event or making a decision with, you know, in your mind, not all of the information. I, I was on a, a, a leadership webinar the other day, and so I won't take credit for this, but I'll steal it unabashedly. The best advice I heard in a while was make the next best decision. And so the next best decision for your organization might be to cancel an event that is two months out because you're pretty darn sure that in two months, you're not going to be able to pull off that event. You don't know for sure. Um, we just talked about how in Virginia, we were told June 10th. So maybe you have an event in July and you're thinking, it's likely not going to happen. If for some, there is a miracle cure and your event, you know, was June 15th and you could have pulled it off on June 15th, I think the world will forgive you for making the decision, you know, in April to have canceled your June or July event. For crisis communications, being transparent and sharing information as early as possible as you can, if you've already got donors or sponsors committed to an event, um, picking up the phone and making a personal phone call. Most of those organizations are already dealing with this as well. They understand. They might not even have time to take your phone call. You'll be leaving a voicemail. But as long as they hear from you, look, this event isn't going um, in the way that we thought. They understand. And if you have a relationship, I think Trish really hit on this. Remember, fundraising is about relationships. If you have a relationship with this sponsor or donor, what a great time to just even cement the relationship even further and turn that into an unrestricted gift. Um, look at what you were promising in terms of the marketing benefits that are usually associated with a sponsorship. And guess what? You were already aligning with their corporate philanthropic interests if they were committing to your event. Animal welfare was already something that they cared about if they were committing to your organization. You can still give them so much um, exposure by saying in all your formats that you have available to you. Look at what great XYZ organization did for my animal welfare or my shelter or whoever you are by turning their gift in this moment to an unrestricted, um, you know, grant. You can do a lot with those things. If it's a brand new sponsor who maybe you didn't have a relationship with, it's the time to build that relationship by picking up the phone and having a conversation with them. So in, in my understanding, in my experience with crisis communications around these kinds of things, it's um, it's about establishing a relationship and maintaining a relationship. Trish, I'm going to come back to you. I want to talk about that relationship side. But Caroline, just sticking with uh, events for a second, 
I think this is going to be a theme for basically everything at this point, which is how do we take these lemons and make lemonade? You know, we may have been doing the same event for several years. We have it down. We know how to pull it off flawlessly. We always hit goals. I think this is a time where, you know, we have to really redefine how we approach things and and get creative. Yeah. So we were in the exact same situation a couple of weeks ago. Um, We have a dog jog, which is a 5K run and a a one mile dog jog event where um, it's one of our big biggest fundraising events, our largest in terms of attracting families, which is usually a selling point. And at this at this time in public life, um, turned out not to be a selling point. And so we um, canceled that event about two weeks before it was meant to happen. And we had 755 registrants, and there's also a peer-to-peer fundraising element to it. So to your point, um, this was projected to bring in $200,000, and we had multiple, multiple corporate sponsors in addition to those 755. We were hoping to get to 800 individual registrants. And we made the decision to cancel the event, not to reschedule it. Richmond is a is a 5K and 10K a marathon town, and everybody else was rescheduling for a different time, and we did not want to compete. And um, we took the event virtual, and there are a number of ways that you can do that, that to your point, John, makes it exciting, enjoyable. And also from our standpoint, we really wanted this event to take place and not compete with other things that we had. It it would have been disruptive to our fundraising plans to, to reschedule it, and certainly to the community everybody else was already rescheduling. So there were a number of reasons why we wanted to, in, in some way, shape or form, just go through with the event. And so there are apps online for runners to be able to share and virtually, we, we turned it into hashtag virtual dog jog. We had a number of participants um, and we extended the race, so you didn't have to do it on that morning, although we did try to to concentrate those activities that morning. And we had over 300 people uh, in a safe uh, way pick up their packets for registration, uh, still participate, keep their registration fees, um, which were part of the way that we fundraise. All of our sponsors um, were really happy with this. It turned into a way that we could transfer their sponsorship benefits into an online or a virtual experience. Local media picked up on this. And a lot of people participated. It's actually still going on till the end of the month. And it was a way for people who are really looking for a community right now. And everybody is doing that in droves online. I mean, people are going to online content on Instagram and on Facebook, not once a day, not twice a day, but three or four times a day. And so everybody was taking pictures of themselves with their adopted pets, sometimes even the cats and other sorts of animals that they were doing their virtual dog jogs with. And um, it, it was a way to reinvent the idea. People were out getting fresh air, doing it on their own, in their own neighborhoods without being in crowds so that we were able to not be in any sort of violation with CDC or local requirements um, or even just, you know, going in the backyard and playing with their um playing with their dogs or cats. So um, there are ways that you can reimagine and get creative and, 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 and sort of put a pin in the event and, and, and get the fundraising done um, if that's right for you. Yeah. And that diversion, bringing that community together, people do want that. I mean, we're feeling very isolated. So whatever we can do, uh, I love that uh, idea. Just again, it's just reinventing it a little bit. So speaking of community, Trish, fundraising is about relationships. In a world that's really built around handshakes um, and that personal connection, we lose that. And even virtually, I mean, yes, we have technology and it's great. And it brings us together just like we're doing now with this podcast. 
it's not the same. And if we can't take people to our facilities and really get them feeling involved and connected to what we're doing, how can we fill that gap? Even though people will be understanding, it's still not going to be the same. So let me answer that question in a couple of ways, John. Think about the friendships in your life first and how those friendships were formed. And we say this to all the folks that come through our Shelter Outreaches team training academies, because those concepts that might be really natural to Carol Ann and me and other fundraisers of cultivation and solicitation and stewardship, that just sounds like a lot of fuzzy development speak. But when you think about how you really have developed the strongest relationships in your life, not the spouses, not the children, not the blood relatives, but those really true friends you are constantly looking for ways to interact and you can't always be face to face with them. Now, the people that will probably be in the strongest positions are the ones who have already developed great relationships and they've done it in many different ways over the years. That whole ability to build out something where just everything that goes into a relationship, trust, transparency, as Carol Ann was saying, a, a sense that we are in this together, that doesn't stop just because we can't be face to face. Does it put a little pause on how fast you might be able to develop a relationship with someone who's brand new to your organization? Maybe, but depending again, fundraising principles, you're often introduced by people who already know you and trust you. I don't think it's impossible with the technology we have in front of us. The core point you make about relationships, you're absolutely right. And the person who came out with a statement that I just love is the woman who has led N10, which is the technology organization for people who work in the nonprofit sector. When Amy Sample Ward of N10 says digital technology or technology in general is not going to save us, people are going to save us. They always have, they always will. And she's talking about relationships. And so whether those relationships are developed through email correspondence or direct mail or phone or you're building off face-to-face, just looking for the ways to strengthen and deepen those is where we are now. And, and really, it's where we should be always. I hope coming out of all of this, and we will come out of it, some sectors will take longer to recover, just like they did in 2008, but they did recover. And so I hope we come out of this remembering what we've learned with those three fundraisers who had events and had to come up with very creative alternatives that we talked to the other day. I loved it when Jackie Roach of Best Friends, who was also representing her Husky Rescue Organization, said, you know what? We've started to wonder if we really need all these events. And while events are great friend raisers and you get the right event and the right audience, as Carol Ann has done, as Julie has done in Lynchburg, still there are a lot of events across this country that are not effective fundraising tools. They're great parties, but they're not the most cost effective. And there are even studies to show that. So I'm hoping that as people show their adaptive abilities, and certainly that's a really uplifting thing about animal care and welfare, people were on it in a red hot minute. Okay, this isn't going to work. What are we going to do now? 
just like in life saving. So I hope we come out of this with people looking at their income streams and being more diversified. The strongest programs have diversified income streams so that you're looking at individuals, corporations, and foundations, and not just one of those and not just events as your primary tactic for raising money from individuals. I've heard this now a couple of times that this is not a time to acquire new donors. Is that true? If you're finding ways to encourage people to share contact info, you can acquire new donors. You're not going to be going out and tabling at events, uh, your social media, where you're using platforms, where the platform is not going to give up that contact info. And no one should have dreams right now that they are because every sign points to the fact that the social media platforms will not give that up. But where you can encourage people to go to your website and share their email address so that they can continue to receive that wonderful house concert that Carol Ann just talked about or more of that great cat stuff. Um, I hope, John, that you are a tinykittens.com.org listener because Tiny Kittens up in Vancouver does an amazing job of giving you the kind of content that just makes you want to give them your email, your money, and everything else. Um, so they're, they're a great example, I always cite of that. Caroline, I want to talk about boards. I want to talk about tapping into people who at this moment in time, if there's anyone that should be out there not just themselves giving money, but really pounding the pavement for you, it's boards, right? Yeah, um, I would think that if you are a board member and you have not made your annual fund gift, now is the time. Please stop what you're doing and make it and put your development staff out of their misery. I would also say if you have already made your annual fund gift and it's about to be the beginning of April, take care of your family, take care of your finances, look and see what's left over and make a second gift to the uh, organization that you are on the board of. Even if you are not that board member who has the highest capacity, you will be setting an example for those who do. Uh, and that's really important right now. Also, a way that board members can be really helpful, John, you, you nailed it, um, helping to kind of, um, <laughs> we had a virtual tip jar the other night, they can rattle the real tip jar in terms of asking their friends and, um, again, leading by example to their other board members. We don't know in what capacity, um, and it, it'll depend on what your donor makeup looks like um, in terms of, you know, how you're how your gifts are coming in and, and in um, what sort of percentage what that donor that ever um, present donor pyramid looks like. But we all know that it's going to have some sort of an impact on um, our organizations, big and small. And so it's really critical that our board lead by example through their, through their philanthropy. Another way that our board can be helpful is if you are one of those smaller organizations and you don't have the benefit of your own professional HR staff, maybe you have a board member who does that can help kind of navigate. There's a big laws have just been passed. And what does that mean for your payroll? And what does that mean for, um, you know, I'm fortunate. I've got a, a great HR team that is has been devoted for weeks and weeks to a crisis response for this and rolling out what what does this mean that there's mandatory leave and what does it mean that, you know all these sort of laws that have been passed if you are a small organization and you don't have the benefit of that maybe somebody on your board is in a larger corporate setting and can get you access to that information um, because things are changing and they're changing rapidly and um, that's a service that they can help you with the stimulus package understanding payroll relief uh, you know laws and things that have come in for that Trish what's your take what is the role, the responsibility that boards should be taking right now? I think boards can help 
staffs or groups of volunteers, if you have no staff, through the fear and ambiguity. And that, again, is another thing that's timeless. 1990, we thought we'd seen the worst when we invaded Iraq for the first time. We had a recession. Of course, 2008 made that recession look like a walk in the park. But the way it felt was the worst we'd seen, just like 2008 felt like the worst we'd seen. And this feels like the worst we've seen. But I walked into a board meeting where we were at 35 percent of our operations at a time when you want to be at least at 50 percent. Brand new job, brand new state, scared of my mind as a fundraiser, right? Because who's responsible for getting us out of this hole? It's the fundraiser. And the board chair stood up and said in a very definitive and, and compassionate way, if we believe that everyone in this room is doing the very best we can, and we do, then the only question is what will each one of us in this room do to ensure that we can carry out our mission this year? I mean, just in that one stroke, he put us all in the same boat, so to speak, and let me know that I was not going to be thrown under the bus. And then, in fact, no one was going to be thrown under the bus. So I, I share that story just to say a lot of board chairs in particular may not realize the power they have to help people just exhale and then really be able to focus on the practical solutions. So I just would encourage every board member to use that opportunity to help people feel that we are in this together. Trish, I'm going to ask you to pick up your crystal ball. What's coming? Three months, six months, a year. Are you planning for that now or uh, are we really more focused on the immediate? I think you're planning for it in waves. And there's an old cliche that says if you've seen one recession, you've seen one recession, right? Meaning each one of them has something unique. And what is unique so far in this world is the global pandemic. I personally don't think it's the last global pandemic we're going to see. And rather than curl up in a fetal position, I think we need to do what we've done as a species and continue to adapt and realize that the reason we've made it this far is when we began working together in groups. And I know that may sound a little crazy, but at some point to survive, we had to collaborate, whether it was around the campfire, on the hunt, or in the fields. And it's going to be collaboration and that resurrection of a new type of community that that gets us through. So I'm sure you're hearing, too, that we may need to be prepared for a second cycle of COVID in fall. Not great news, but okay, let's do scenario planning. We're capable of that and do our what if scenarios so that we've got multiple options. And it's not as though we just have one choice or the other. I think some really practical advice for people right now is to, first of all, I want all the fundraisers to take a deep breath and just remember you've, the, these instincts are built in you to, to have both the analytical side of you and the creative side of you, the, the art and the science in you. You're just going to tip those scales in a different direction than maybe we felt comfortable doing before. And I'm, I say this because I have to say it to myself every day. So I'm saying it to others um, as a mantra to myself as well. And I think some really practical advice right now is to look at your fund development plan for the next six weeks, the next 12, so three months, and also the next six months. Also looking at probably um, having to make up some deficits in your next fiscal year. Your goals are probably going to be larger next fiscal year to make up for some um, lack of funding that some goals that you didn't hit for this year. And 
in that reevaluation of your six week and your 12 week and your six month plans, more than likely pulling events as you knew them, not all events, but events as you knew them out of your toolkit. And that might seem scary, but if you break it down, and to Trisha's point, let's look at your event. What, where was it coming from? Was it coming from sponsorships? Well, how many of them were already committed? How many of them were already paid? What kind of relationships do you have with them? Let's start just breaking that number down. And you, you have the tools in your arsenal to, to talk to those people. You are aligning with their corporate social responsibility. You still do. You can still broadcast to the world that, you know, Bob's Widgets loves animals because, without Bob's Widgets showing up and having the table at your gala. You know, um, so it's all about that relationship. And so many people are converting those to unrestricted dollars. Was it coming from an auction? What sort of packages were you putting in your auction? For us, uh, we do have some events that rely on auctions and they're not a tr- not a travel package. Right. They oh, can't they can't be anymore. They were travel and restaurant experience and private chef coming to your home and all these kinds of things. So can they be different things or does the auction well, need to turn into Oh come on. A, sh- a chef could come to your home. You just have to wrap him in garbage bags. Right. I think it's probably right. Well, also, you know, we have such a great restaurant community here in Richmond that just immediately got hit, you know, just blindsided. And so is it inappropriate for us to ask them to start giving stuff away for free? Um, Probably. And probably as they're going through the recovery phase, which is, again, why you have to look at where were the streams of income for an event that might be raising a big chunk of your money, where, how are you breaking those down? Can you get creative? And this is where your board and your volunteers and those people can come in to be um, helpful and help you get creative. Maybe it's something different that they're auctioning off and bidding on, or maybe they're just angel pledges, uh, as we call them, that are coming in to help. But once you start breaking those things down, maybe the overall goal is different. Maybe it's not um, a $100,000 event. Maybe it becomes a $75,000 event. But that's a lot less scary to think, wow, I've just lost you know, 25000 on this event than it is to think, to be panicking and running around with your hair on fire thinking, oh, I'm losing 100000 because then you're looking at a $25,000 deficit. And you might maybe make that a little less because I've just saved the money on the auctioneer and the event rental <laughs> and the catering. And you can really just start breaking these things down. Um, that's just my best practical advice. Do that for the next six weeks, the next 12 weeks, and the next six months with an eye toward how are you best positioning yourself to more than likely make up a certain percentage of this lost revenue in your in your goals for next year in the most realistic fashion possible. Um, because we we will come out of this. There'll, there'll be some hits here and there. But when you when you break it down and you really just kind of stare the monster in the face, I'm going to take this uh, metaphor, Trish, you gave me and run with it. Uh, it becomes less scary. And there are friends. You have friends. Your mission has always been critical. And we've always been doing life-saving work. And there have been people... Um, in this work with you before COVID-19 and they care deeply about the work you have now. And not all of them are feeling the, the, the financial stress in the same way. And so it's your plan moving forward. As you look at that six, 12 and um, six weeks, 12 weeks and six months, it's going to, it's going to be really heavy on stewardship and engagement and positioning yourself to have really, really strong relationships and to focus on strategy. A lot of times, we lament that we get into work and I'm just putting out the fires in front of me or I'm just going in to do the day-to-day and I wish I had time to sit back and you know, really focus on my development strategy. Well, ladies and gents, um, this is your time to do it, to, to really focus on your strategy and, and um, how you're going to best position yourself. And if events have to change or come out of the toolkit for a little while, you can do it. And if you were really, really event heavy, 
as some of these orgs were, um, to Trisha's point earlier, this is an opportunity. It's coming at you <laughs> whether you want it or not. So we might as well call it an opportunity to find a way to diversify that. Animal welfare is a tough career. You know, it doesn't matter the role you play. It's hard on the brain, the body, soul. And I can only imagine the weight that development staff must feel day to day, knowing the responsibility they have to bring in all these resources to make it all happen. So now in this pandemic time, we're also remote. We've lost the ability for contact with our colleagues. Trish, what are you doing to feel that camaraderie? I think you're somebody that already works remotely and you travel a lot. So how do you keep that together? What advice do you have? What do you do to personally stay balanced? You know, I've been a nonprofit now for many decades, and I've amassed this incredible group of people that have allowed me to learn from them, to stand on their shoulders, cry on their shoulders when necessary. So I have this um, one group in particular, the Global Girls Network. We've, we've all worked and been travelers. And so now we're all getting on Zoom and Skype and FaceTime and everything else and having virtual happy hours um, and just doing everything, sending cards. I mean, we've sort of, we've always used care packages for each other, but so far the mail is still running and we love snail mail, not, not just because of our age, but just because it's so great to think of something that you didn't expect arriving and it's something where someone thought about you. So there's another tip for donor stewardship if you haven't thought about it. And, and then um, I do try to read things, listen to music, the things that just fill my heart with joy anyway. I'm just trying to make sure, as Carol Ann was saying, we all get busy, get our heads down and trying to do the work. But I try to make sure that I have all of that surrounding me. I appreciate Trish and Carol Ann for taking the time to share their expertise. Now, I'm sure you've heard of Giving Tuesday. That's where charities ask for online donations as part of the holiday shopping season. There's a good chance that you've participated in this worldwide day. Now, it was planned for December 1st this year, but that has been moved up to May 5th. To help you make the most of Giving Tuesday, our network partner team assembled a slew of COVID-19 fundraising resources. You can find all of them at bestfriends.org podcast. I'd like to thank the producers of this show, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. And don't forget, you can email us here, podcast at bestfriends.org. What are you up to? Have you found some creative ways to weather the storm? I'd love to hear all about it, podcast at bestfriends.org. Please take care of yourselves and each other and be safe. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.